Welcome to Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. The Newcastle Family History Society, located on a Wabakal land in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia, provides support for those interested in family history. This podcast is the first in a series about the bad girls of the Newcastle Industrial School and Reformatory. Bad girls, or simply poor, vulnerable and disenfranchised young women, victims of 19th century society in New South Wales. Regardless, every girl deserves to be remembered. Society member Jane Ison has, for the past 12 years, been researching the existence and background of these girls. She starts the story here. It is difficult to imagine what life was like in the past. Living in New South Wales during the 1860s and 1870s could be a very scary existence. After the gold rushes of the 1850s, the population continued to increase, with immigrants coming from all over the world. Transportation had ended, but many convicts were still alive and trying to build a life for themselves and their families. Life was fragile and tragedy could strike at any time, and unfortunately this often happened. A family unit could fall apart if either parent died, as there was often no extended family to help. Government support and infrastructure was limited. There was no single-parent pension or First Offenders Act. It was easy to go to jail, even if you were a child. You could say that jails were a reasonably safe place to be at this time. Life must have been harrowing for many, and jail records show how many admissions were for people the courts had decided were insane. Men couldn't give up work to care for their children if their wife died in childbirth, as sometimes they needed to travel to find work and couldn't take their children with them. What opportunities did a woman have to earn money and still keep her children with her if her husband died or was killed? Going into service meant finding and paying someone to care for children. Remarriage was common and necessary, although parents sometimes abandoned their children. Children from these frequently fractured families were understandably placed at great stress. Sometimes they acted out and became resentful of their new family. They were certainly at risk of exploitation and mistreatment. All were victims of their circumstances, but there was little available to help them. The churches operated the orphan schools and the benevolent societies to help young children and destitute families. In 1858, the government had opened the Randwick Asylum. Significantly, there was no support for children in need after they reached the age of about 12. By this age, the courts and their parents expected them to be working or in an apprenticeship. For years, Newspapers reported on the growing problem, especially in Sydney, describing the children variously and quite inappropriately as street Arabs, street urchins or wild white children. In 1866, under the guidance of Henry Parks, yes, Henry Parks, he wasn't a sir yet, the New South Wales government passed the Act for the Relief of Destitute Children in an attempt to alleviate the dreadful conditions under which many children were living. The government plan was to take responsibility for the parenting of children in need 
and to care for them and provide health care, food, shelter, education and some kind of skill to give them a better chance at future employment. It also planned to find suitable apprenticeships for them, so returning to their earlier life was less likely. This law eventually became known as the Industrial Schools Act. What was Newcastle like in the 1860s and 1870s? Paintings from the time show that the fort protected the entrance of the Hunter River. There was a wharf at the end of Watt Street. Nobby's was connected to the mainland, but there was no Nobby's Beach and no southern breakwater. Ships were running aground on the Oyster Bank as there was no northern breakwater. The jail still overlooked what is now the Ocean Baths. A large area between the fort and the hospital was undeveloped and was known as the Sand Hills. Christ Church and the hospital as we know them were yet to be built, but some buildings looked as they do today. Customs House, the Hunter Street Police Station and Lockup, and most importantly, the government buildings off Watt Street that we now know as the James Fletcher site, we would all recognise. In 1867, these barracks buildings housed a police museum and police accommodation, and not much else. Once the Industrial Schools Act was passed, the government had to work out where to accommodate all these arrested children. By 1867, the Vernon, a sailing ship, had been set up for the boys off Cockatoo Island in Sydney Harbour. A suitable location for the girls was more difficult to find. Providing for the girls was considered vital because it was believed that if they were to become pregnant at a young age, they would perpetuate the problem of crime and poverty that had been causing so much concern. Eventually the decision was made to use the former military barracks in Newcastle. The police were evicted from the government buildings in Watt Street and the premises was fitted out. Accommodation and classrooms for the female admissions were established in the building we now identify as the soldiers' barracks. Living accommodation for staff was arranged in the northernmost building we know as the officers' barracks. Across New South Wales from July 1867, the first arrests of boys began. Yes, arrests. Arrests of girls were followed in late August 1867. Children who were under the age of 16, who were vagrant, or were in the company of thieves and prostitutes, were arrested. Each child appeared in court and was sentenced to a year, minimum, in the industrial school. In 1869, a girls' reformatory was opened on the same site. It took valuable space away from the staff accommodation in the former officers' barracks. Girls who had committed a crime that would have sent them to jail for at least 12 months now were sent to the reformatory. It was not considered necessary to establish a boys' reformatory. Memories of the past fade over time or are hidden from children to become the family secret. So family stories need to be rediscovered. Every family is part of history, so descendants are often those who uncover those faded memories or family secrets. 
Family researchers, however, sometimes reach a point where identifying an ancestor becomes almost impossible. For my family, Margaret Poole was one of those ancestors. Margaret suddenly appeared in Gunnedah in 1875 when she married. According to her marriage certificate, she had not been born overseas as I had expected, but in Sydney in about 1856. There was no trace of her or her family anywhere. I reasoned that the easiest way to Gunnedah was up the Hunter River. But there was no evidence of any family in towns along the river. I even visited Gunnedah to see if there was any evidence of her father Robert or any other family member. There was a Robert Poole living in Newcastle, and I hoped by reading the Newcastle Church of England records, as you do, I might find a trace, any trace, of him. Might he have been a witness at a marriage? Was there any clue to the work he did? I began to read, and amazingly I soon found Margaret's name. On the 27th of February, 1869, Margaret was baptised at Christchurch. This shocking discovery named her parents, recorded that she had been born in Cook's River, and also that she was a pupil at the industrial school. Cook's River was in Sydney, and the parents matched what I knew. Here was my elusive ancestor, and this was how I stumbled upon the existence of the Newcastle Industrial School for Girls. I had at that time no idea what this school was, so I tried to learn more, only to find that nobody else knew anything much either. Back in 2009, there were no Sydney or Newcastle newspapers from the 1860s and 1870s on Trove, but there were many articles about the Newcastle School in newspapers from other states, and they all told pretty bad stories. Over the years and months, more newspapers were scanned to Trove, and I began to create a list of the Newcastle admissions, whose names had been lost to time. Many were in the news for all the wrong reasons, but at least they appeared in their own right. I began to uncover their tragic stories and was so moved by what I found I decided to write about each girl, using the newspaper reports and the many undigitised letters at state archives in Kingswood. Every biography was put onto my website, recording the family and history of each admission. Included on the site are the identities and biographies of most of the girls whose names did not survive to reach state archives. Many of their stories are quite remarkable. With rare exceptions, each story is a tale of the poor, vulnerable and disenfranchised during the 19th century, and every girl deserves to be remembered. While the life of the poor and vulnerable at this time may make shocking reading, the stories of success were numerous, as most of these girls went on to become loving wives and mothers and successful women. So from knowing only the name Margaret Poole, I was able to build her story and the story of 192 others, sometimes learning things that I didn't really want to know. Almost every child arrested under the Act has a newspaper report of their trial. Margaret Poole was no exception. Her arrest was reported in the Empire in Sydney 
and she appeared at the Central Police Court in September 1867. The Empire wrote, Margaret Poole, a little girl aged 12 years, in rags and apparently half-starved, was brought before the court. She had been arrested by virtue of a warrant at the instance of Senior Sergeant Taylor. She has been living in a house on the Illawarra Road, Cooks River. The persons with whom she was living, named Hardy and Gardner, were quite unfit to have the care of the child. Both Hardy and Gardner were drunken women and improper characters. The child was ordered to be sent to the public industrial school at Newcastle, and the bench very humanely ordered her to be at once supplied with something to eat. The constables in Sydney considered that Margaret's place of arrest was in fact a house of ill repute, also known as a brothel, and that Betsy Hardy and her associate Gardner were prostitutes. What is not reported or even considered at the time is that it was also a refuge for children like Margaret, whose mother had died and whose father needed someone to care for her. Margaret arrived in Newcastle shortly after her trial and I was horrified to learn that a medical examination verified that she was a virgin and that she had no sexually transmitted diseases, unlike some of the other admissions. Margaret was one of only two girls from the school who were baptised in 1869 when she was about 13. Dates and circumstances suggest that she had at least one ulterior motive for deciding to be baptised. The day before, Joseph Hines Clark, the new superintendent of the school, perhaps hoping to inspire the difficult girls in his care, had baptised his 15-year-old son, George. I like to imagine that Margaret had planned to impress young George Clark, but she would also have wanted to give his father a good impression of her. Margaret remained in the school until November 1870, when at about the age of 15 was apprenticed to Scone as a housemaid, being paid about four shillings a week. In May 1872, she attempted to leave this apprenticeship early and returned to her father in Sydney by declaring that she was a year older than she actually was. A letter from the Sydney police showed that they had visited her father who provided her correct birth date. So Margaret moved to a new employer on the Liverpool Plains. She probably never saw her father again as he drowned in Botany Bay about three months later. Margaret died in childbirth in Urella in 1888 at the age of 33. Children admitted to an industrial school were apprenticed to households across New South Wales, often moving great distances from their parents and siblings and causing their descendants a lot of trouble. If you have family members in this situation, then you too may have an ancestor who had been in an institution. Compiling the names and personal histories of each girl has uncovered much of the social history of this time and drawn an interesting image of Newcastle. Four short, tumultuous years, the Industrial School for Girls and the Reformatory existed side by side at Newcastle. The inmates and what they did at the school became infamous, and their exploits as individuals or as a group were reported in local and national newspapers, strongly featuring accounts of their outrageous behaviour, ribald language, frequent escapes and wild rioting. 
In the next podcast in this series, learn about some of the admissions to Newcastle and why things may have begun on a bad footing for the school. Thanks for listening to this podcast. In the next episode, Jane will give an overview of ages and locations and will focus on some of the first admissions, particularly the older girls who cause no end of trouble. You may also like to visit nis.wiki.com for a more detailed account of the Newcastle Industrial School and Reformatory. Be sure to join us again on Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. <laughs>